Well, here we go. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, for the listener who can't see, Dan and I uh, both have stands, now mic stands, and it's, uh, feels more professional, but it's also very like, whoa, mm, <laughs> this thing's in my face. Quite literally in your face. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about this yet, so I'm a little, I'm on edge for this one. I'm on uh-huh, edge. Uh-huh. For intimidated. The, little, intimidated. A little bit intimidated. I'm yeah. on edge for the uh, reading today, I'm on edge for the mic in my face, and I'm on edge because I've had a lot of tea today, so I'm ready to go. I'm ready for this one, Dan, I'm ready to go. Some of the tea was um, yeah. not caffeine-free. Decaf, not decaf. All of them were, except for the last one. Oh. So um, I'm kind of all over the place today. Well, um, it's very nice to be here with you, Jack, once yes, again. Yes, I know. My God, look at us, Dan. We're here. We're ready to go. Uh, it's sunny. It's not warm yet, but it is sunny. Uh-huh. Um, Dodgers have been winning like crazy. Baseball's back. All's right with the world. Um, Dodgers will probably never lose again, quite uh-huh, frankly. Uh-huh, so uh-huh, you know, uh-huh. everything's good. I mean, I don't know very much about baseball, but from what little I do know, <laughs> it's perfectly plausible. Uh, you that's know how what? It works. That that's seems how like it, it could happen. Like teams sometimes just never lose. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The next 150 games, yeah. they're not going to lose. Yeah. It'll be fine. Is that how long a season is? 162. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Fucking hell. I know, yeah. A lot of games. It takes dedication to be a baseball fan, I think. It does. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been actually... Well, maybe not really, because you just like, oh, baseball's on again. Yeah, it's always exactly. like, it's yeah. not, it's not oh, last. You don't have to like go out of your way to find some baseball to watch. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The new like kind of like nerdy statistics thinking like Moneyball-esque thing to do if you're like running a team is I've to just... Yeah, it's pretty good. good. Well, yeah, it's pretty good. It's to just kind of like not really care so much about their regular season and just kind of like... Just make it to the playoffs. Doesn't matter what your uh-huh, record is, make it to the uh-huh, playoffs. Uh-huh. And then they recognize that the playoffs are kind of a crapshoot. So it's like, just get to the playoffs. See what happens. Who cares? Don't spend money. <laughs> oh, so you mean like just just do whatever it takes to get there and then yeah. the playoffs are just a bit of a toss of a coin anyway. You might yeah. win, you might not see what happens. Yeah. They're like, like just be five hundred. Don't you know, don't you don't need to break I see any records. What you mean. Although the Dodgers, the breaking records, <laughs> breaking they won't lose again, as I've said again. Uh-huh. Entirely unnecessary show of um... <laughs> Sporting prowess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Somebody should tell them. They're flexing. 500. Their two best players are on the injured list right now, and they're just like, it doesn't matter because they have so many good players. It's Uh just like, who Uh cares? Uh It's a bit Uh cheeky. That's very cheeky. They should spread the good players around. Absolutely. Well, they've just blown past the salary cap too, which is awesome. I have a lot of theories on how to apply what we've been talking about, Dan, to baseball in a way that would be a lot better, and it involves... um, Messing around with the salary cap. I'm not going to get into it too much. Maybe we'll do a baseball episode sometime in the future, and I'll be able to just go off, as they say. I'd like that. You can you can teach me about baseball. Yeah, yeah. I'd be like, I'm, thing yeah, I'm willing to learn. Baseball's it's the best sport, and yeah. everybody agrees on that. Yeah, it's one thing we can all agree Everyone. on. Everyone. Everyone. <laughs> everybody agrees, don't they, folks? <laughs> <laughs> don't they? Um, well, this is lovely. Um, uh-huh. Great weather. Great stuff. How are you doing? Uh, I'm quite well. Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. We're slowly eking our way out of lockdown. Mm-hmm. Uh, yesterday, or no, two days ago, was First Day Pubs were open. In the garden? Little, yeah, 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 yeah. A little stressful. I haven't been to the pub yet. Me neither. Mm. I was very stressed walking around town and having a bunch of drunk people again. Was yeah, that was like the that. one. I went into town yesterday, and that was the one, impl- uh, the one unpleasant moment yeah. was the sort of like... I don't know whether they directly heckled people <laughs> passing by or whether yeah. they were just heckling the world in a way which yeah. sort of like um, felt quite aggressive. Fair enough. But other than that, I quite enjoyed being in town amongst mm. people. I didn't find it too anxiety inducing. Yeah. I went into a few shops and I was uncharacteristically friendly with the employees <laughs> therein. So I don't know. Maybe I was quite um, irritating to them, but <laughs> I made pleasant conversation. And I don't 
Oh, that's no. nice. Would you go clothes shopping or something? Would you do? No, I went around the charity shops. Oh, cool. Well, a couple of them. I mean, to go to the. I sort of like pacing myself. Yeah. Don't want to get too excited. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I just want to go to the bookshop. I have no. I, I, uh, I have shops being open. It's like I just go to the store for food. Yeah. Like, that's about it. So. Yeah. Let's go to charity bookstore. That'd be good. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Slurp up whatever communist reading material uh-huh. they've been setting, sitting on for the last couple months. Uh-huh. So, mm. People seem to be queuing to get into places. Oof, I don't like that. I don't quite understand the, the mentality behind queuing to get into Primark. <laughs> I've got to say. I have a question for you about Primark. Yeah. Someone mentioned Primark the other day, and I was like, Primark, the clothes store, Primark, the Warhammer 40K, uh, set of characters. Uh-huh. Do you think that they called them Primark as they're kind of known to do like kind of silly jokes in Games Workshop? Do you think that that was part of their? They're like, oh, it's Primark. That's kind of funny. We'll spell it differently, like this shop. I wasn't even aware it was spelled differently. <laughs> Wasn't it Primark the stores with a K? Or am I crazy? I have no idea. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to believe you. Cool. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I, I think perhaps in this instance it oh, may okay. not be the case. I'm going to spread that rumor. Okay, okay, <laughs> okay. I don't even know what state Primark the coast chain was in in the mid-80s or whatever. Oh, yeah, good point. It probably existed. It used to be just like a very generic sort of like budget clothes store. And mm. it's sort of like undergone quite a severe rebranding over the past like, oh, it's been quite a long time now, 10 or 15 severe. years kind of thing. Where um, mm. I don't know. How would you mm. describe them now? Kind of I've a bit never more been sort of like, oh, well. <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> They're now cheap fashion as opposed to just like cheap utility clothes. Fast I think they, fashion. Fast fashion, quite. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, let's mm-hmm. not talk about Primark. <laughs> we can talk about some Primarks if you want. Though. We could talk about some Primarks. Yeah. Who has the best Primarks? I, it's easily Angron. And then uh-huh. I, I kind of have a bit of a soft spot for Corvus Corax. I think he's pretty cool. Okay. There are many more cooler ones than there are cool. As of recently, although I will say that I think Jagatikon is the coolest one. So Okay. I mean, yeah. you could probably just go through all 18 of them. Exactly. Actually, they're the best one. No, <laughs> yeah. actually, Alpharius. No, actually, Magnus the Red. Alpharius no. is pretty cool. <laughs> I li- yeah, I like the Alpha Legion, so I like Alpharius. I'm- they're neat. Magnus. Magnus is cool. Magnus did nothing wrong. <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> we a long time ago, we uh, were checking out his uh, model, his tabletop model, and I don't think either of us were very impressed because Mortarians, like, I think they kind of generally put those out around the same time. I think Mortarian's mm-hmm. rocks. Yeah, I don't know. Magnus Threads is kind of yeah. Kind of I think I only saw that model quite recently. It's got yeah. some big like horns coming out of his chest, yeah. doesn't oh, he? Yeah, big horns. Pretty yeah. ludicrous. <laughs> I mean, That's where like... I draw the line. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah, like keep it realistic. Yeah, come, come on. on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Primark's cool. Primark miniatures cool. Mm, mm, mm. Bringing them back. <laughs> We're bringing them back. Yeah. Who will be the next one to bring back? You know what they no should idea. not bring back? Sanguinius. Mm-hmm. Which they will. Is he dead? Yeah. Did he the die? problem is, I don't know. Oh, yeah, Sanguinius is the one that was killed by the Horus and the. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Of course. What an idiot I am. Idiot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not up on uh, current Games Workshop miniatures, miniatures range, nor the progression of the law, mm. nor the intersection between the present playability of the game and the law. Sure. So, yeah. I don't know. It's all just cool stuff. Yeah. That's, that's the way I feel it about it. It would be purely ill-informed speculation on my part to continue <laughs> this conversation. <laughs> I which mean, would be entirely in keeping with the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be entirely in keeping with the show. Um, 
Speaking of things that rock, Dan, would you like to tell everybody what you forced me to read this week? And then I came away being like, I'm in it. I'm, in, I'm into it. This is very cool. Jack is in. Jack I'm, is in. I'm all in right now. I'm Jack, all in. <laughs> Jack has once again changed his uh, political alignment. I don't know if it's changing so much it's as adding on It's shifting along the it. spectrum. Oh, okay. It's an additive kind of one. Okay. Just shifting on the spectrum a little bit. Yeah. Um, in some cases, it's from a true level or to yeah. uh, council communist. Yeah, you, yeah, you, <laughs> yeah, anarchist council communist. It's not a, um, it's not a desperately large shift. Yes, <laughs> this week we have read Woo! with a specific focus on a short essay by Paul Matic, mm. which appeared in the collection of essays by him, "Anti-Bolshevik Communism." Mm. The essay entitled "Council Communism." Yes which I think was written and published in 1939. I believe so, yeah. I don't know whether it had any updating for that book. Mm. Was, yeah, I'm going to say 1939 edition. Mm. Um, and then also we've sort of been picking and choosing our way through that book and skimming other little bits and mm. reading other little bits and things. So mm. our idea, our intention is to give the um, auxiliary statements, cursory glance, <laughs> quite, quite like that, college try, um, Overview Council Communism. <laughs> yeah. I hear you're a fan, Jack. Uh, wow, I tell you what, I am. As of a couple weeks ago, I've been reading The New Hot Thing, uh, which everybody seems to be reading, which is I finally ordered a copy of, um, I've got it here somewhere, it's Fundamentals of Communist Production and Distribution, I believe, by the Group of International Communists. Hopefully one of these days, Dan and I will get around to finishing it and maybe talking about it on the show, perhaps. Um, but then in addition to this, I mean, it's funny, right? Because we read this ostensibly to talk about a different chapter because the chapter that we kind of skimmed through and also kind of read in this was an essay called Spontaneity and Organization or something, uh -huh, Spontaneity uh -huh, versus uh -huh. Organization, something like that. Um, and we we're going to kind of try and use the Miliband from last week as a jumping off point to talk about Spontaneity versus Organization. But then, um, I don't know what happened. We were just very, I'll speak for myself, I was very like, council communism, tell me more. And um, to answer your question, Dan, yes. I'm quite a fan, quite a fan of this, this whole council communism stuff. And it is funny because like so much of this is just, and maybe this is why I like it. This specific essay by Paul Maddock was just riddled with stuff that was like perhaps written with the in sole intention of being like pissing people off. Uh -huh, <laughs> being uh -huh, like uh -huh. every single opportunity he gets to say that the Soviet Union was state capitalism, he does. And he does that several times in a like 15 page essay. Yeah. Uh, he talks about the like, poor depressed brain of the radical and there are a couple other like zinger one-liners in here that i just loved all about but it, i love it <laughs> yeah how how many people can i accuse of um accidentally or intentionally advancing the interests of capitalism and the status quo exactly. and the the, uh, the the ruling class how can I lump the Soviets and the Nazis together and just do away with them completely? Yeah. <laughs> he, at one point, he's just like, it's basically the same thing, whatever status quo, yeah, moving yeah, yeah. on. Yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. good for I you. I mean, it's fair enough. I guess in that essay, that, that might be from the uh, the spontaneity organization essay mm. and was written in the mm. end of the 40s, I think. But mm. I mean, fair enough to look at the world and be like, yeah, everything's authoritarian now. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Like, but yeah, 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 I was saying beforehand, it's a very kind of like, from my cursory engagement with it, it seemed like he was advancing an idea that basically like the Soviet Union and yeah. the Nazis Ugh. were both advancing sort of capitalist interests or maintaining the capitalist mode of production 
viral authoritarian means. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So maybe just as a as a way to uh, maybe elaborate on what makes council communism council communism. And I feel like Dan, I'm going to say this and then completely move on, much as the author would do. I feel like just by putting the modifier council communism, this kind of does just seem like communism what they're talking about. So I think it's funny having to put the modifier of like council in front of it to be like uh-huh. we're not talking about Leninism, obviously. Uh-huh. We're talking about uh-huh. something uh-huh. like that. It's just branding, Jack. Everybody's it's just branding. Branding, yeah. You've got to find your niche. <laughs> How do you feel about the Soviet Union? <laughs> <laughs> um, what was I going to say? Um, yeah, so the reason that Paul, Paul Automatic Maddox says that, says that perhaps we can uh, just group the Soviet Union, uh, the British Labor Party, and fascism and perhaps Nazism in the same group is because he says that these are all political movements with the aim of maintaining the status quo, which if you just say it like that sounds a little insane, but to him, the status quo, right, is any form of political or economic organization in which uh, uh, alienation on, like, workers are alienated from their product. And he just says, that's it. So these are all, that moving on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then he just talks about something else, just drops that bomb. So that's, that's, a, that's a good way to uh, introduce people to your uh, intellectual movement, I think, is to drop that bombshell on people. Uh-huh. I love it. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's... Um, he's uh... Committing the sin or or um, advancing the virtuous position, depending on how you look at it, <laughs> of actually um, making preeminent in the question of communism and socialism the lot of the workers and the working class. The workers, imagine <laughs> that the workers. Imagine centering the workers in in, uh, in in how you advance the idea of moving towards your uh, workers' utopia. I love it. I love it. And they do the same thing in, in the uh, the group of international communists. I believe that's what it's called, their book, where at the very beginning, like, Maddox kind of does the same thing, where he basically just says that, like, um, any movement that claims to be working on behalf of the working class to usher them towards socialism, that kind of has this, like, whether it's a party, and he's pretty harsh on parties as a whole, or uh, some kind of, like, vanguardist movement of intellectuals, Anything that kind of separates itself from the workers like that is not only bound to fail, but just like not really acting on behalf of the working class. Because if you, he takes Marx's point about the work of emancipation of the working class as the working class's work itself. I think I kind of messed that up, but you know what I mean. Very literally and dogmatically, I think that's fair to say. <laughs> that's kind of like the central core of what is called council communism, I suppose. Do it yourself. We're not going to do it for you. The, lazy bastards <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it's not really included in this essay but i'll just say very briefly like if it isn't op- sort of i guess obvious enough from the name <laughs> um the council communists clearly like drawing their inspiration from um the the movement of councils that spring up in mm. germany in the german revolution and also the rapid growth of the soviet model or mm. the model of the soviet as a form of organization in russia as Sort of like the the spontaneous or emergent organizational form of the workers themselves, and so very keen to attach itself to any activity which is the workers, um, or which is which has its origin in the initi- in the initiative of the workers themselves, and very very <laughs> very 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 skeptical of, almost allergic to. <laughs> Anything which vaguely reeks of anything being imposed upon the workers from above. Yeah. 
and some interventions in this situation in particular very very hostile to the party particularly mm. the leninist party um, yeah we... party form as opposed to the council form kind of thing absolutely a very, a, a very simplistic but stark distinction that you could draw between those two sort of forms of organization and um, yeah. yeah i i like dan can we talk about why why there's this sharp distinction between people who believe we must have a party and basically just a party if that is a way of thinking at all, and I'm not just making somebody up, and somebody like this who's like, uh, the party is just going to end in like uh, some sort of authoritarian disaster, bro. Uh, we just need councils, and that's it. The work of the working class is the work of the working class. Um, and why, why we can't try both? Uh -huh. <laughs> why, like, why Maddox seems to think that it, they're mutually exclusive, and why perhaps other more like. MLE kind of Stalinisty type people would think that like nah, I think you know if there are people out there still calling themselves blockists even um, <laughs> why there needs to either be as far in that end of like a vanguard or mm. just a party in general why those two things seem to be different because I haven't quite figured out why you can't have workers councils and a political party through which they act you know what I mean Tune in next week, folks, when Jacques <laughs> declares himself to be a Blanquist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'll be a quite. Yeah, I go from council communist to Blanquist. <laughs> hey, it could happen. I mean, we, I mean, we've encountered this 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 question before, have we not? When we were talking about the the chapter from uh, Marxism and politics, the Miliband chapter, when we we're talking mm. about the the class and the party kind of thing, sure, yeah, um, and the the position that party gets into of sort of like mediating the class, whether it's a direct representation of the class whether it uh, manifests the interests of the class whether it emerges from the class or whether it is a class of person that sets itself apart from the class mm -hmm. um, uh, and almost seems to sort of seeks to dictate or um, impose its will or uh, seeks to direct or thinks itself thinks it, it thinks that it is his its privileged role to emancipate yeah. I mean that's the worst position is to some extent yeah. like it thinks it's the work of the party alone to do the emancipatory work and that seems to think what they um, think a party is yeah 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 and I mean also we I mean well the, the idea of the um the vanguard party I suppose the party that's democratically centralist in its organization it's very explicit in the writings of Lenin that he thought that the workers alone were only capable of um, developing what's he called trade union consciousness mm, and it was necessary for um, a party to come along and actually um, directly inflate I suppose or, or augment least. or improve the consciousness of exactly, the workers yeah. in a way which they were incapable of achieving on their own mm. so yeah what was your distinction yeah 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 I mean it will so the question is like what yeah 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 whether why one and not the other yeah Be um, because I think as we'll see in a moment like their idea of what council communist groups, he was very careful to call them groups, would do is kind of like, obviously it's not the same thing as like a Leninist party, but it's like when he says what we need to do is shape, like, well, not shape uh, consciousness, but he uses the phrase, our groups need to propagandize and that needs to be our main function. Yeah, like, I was I was really taken with this idea and I don't know how fully I understand it. Mm. It's sort of almost a critique or attack on the idea of consciousness itself. Yeah. That the Leninist form of organization and the Leninist party 
that is the central feature of that form of organization is is fixated on the idea of the consciousness of the working class and that you have to sort of like build up or um, develop the consciousness of the working class to the point where it's ready to mm. take the action needed yeah. to overthrow capitalism. Whereas, I mean, I guess, I guess what's counterposed to this by the council communists or by Paul Matic when he's talking about these sort of like the theories of the various council communists or the theories that he's advancing, he's putting spontaneity in the place of consciousness to some extent. Sure. In the sense that it isn't a... Um, gradual accumulation of consciousness which is going to lead to um, the eventual sort of revolutionary moment kind of thing mm. but more of a as I say like spontaneous the there will there will come a revolutionary moment like events will develop in such a way as um, a revolutionary situation will develop the struggle, like he, he advances the idea that the class struggle is ever present in capitalism, right? Sure. Um, which I think we can agree on. Mm. But at only certain moments does that class struggle develop purely revolutionary characteristics, I suppose. Mm. Um, and it's only at those moments in time that um, the working class is required to um, develop truly counter systemic counter-capitalist sure. modes of thinking so i suppose like i mean to, to draw back to the text we can make this distinction between the party as the thing which organizes under capitalism mm. and for paul matic the party that organizes under capitalism regardless of its stated aims mm. cannot help but be capitalistic in some respects sure um cannot help in some way or other seek to support the status quo yeah. Whereas the council form is the um, expression of the working class, which is not itself uh, capitalist kind of thing. It doesn't seek to augment the capitalist relations of production. Mm. It doesn't seek to, as the what he calls like the old workers movement. Mm. It doesn't seek to <laughs> the council form doesn't seek as the old workers movement did to. Um, augment the distribution of values under capitalism kind of thing mm. doesn't doesn't seek to get a better share for the workers it is in its uh, in in it is in its very um form the the sort of model for the new society to some extent mm. it's also the appropriate form for the fighting of the revolutionary class struggle i suppose yeah but then it's also the form of the new society or the organization of the new society as well mm. um yeah, but, I'm, it, oh, go ahead. Well, no, I'm, I was only going to add to that, like, I was doing some extra reading from Gilles Dove's uh, The Eclipse and Reemergence of the Communist Movement. Mm. And one of the um, critiques he makes in there at the Council of Communists is that um, they were, because of the circumstances they were living in, or the, I guess the first wave of the Council of Communists, I suppose, because of the circumstances they'd witnessed, they were incredibly allergic to the idea of party uh, in, a way, in a way that, in a way that Dove thinks was perhaps um, short-sighted, I suppose. And basically mm. he counterposes the, the Leninist and the, I guess the Leninist party, he lumps together like the Leninist party and the, the sort of the German social democratic model of the party mm. um, and counterposes that sort of turn of the century model of the party to how the party is described by Marx as sure. something which sort of emerges from the activity of the working class. Sure. I don't know um, 
how Dovey interprets or intends to suggest that the party ought to actually function mm. in everyday political organising. Maybe it shouldn't. It's em- it's emergent from the revolutionary class struggle in the same way that the council form is, perhaps. But then it does raise the question, like, what is actually, as you were saying, what is actually the difference between the party yeah. and the council? If yeah, it's exactly. Like, if it's just a, uh, a sort of, like, emergent feature of... yeah. The, the autonomous and spontaneous activity of the class in objectively revolutionary periods of history. Yeah, and the emergence is such a big part of it for Maddox as well, because it's like the way he kind of gets around saying, you know, okay, well, but we're not part of the capitalist organizations, dude. Like you've seen all of those parties in the past, like, you know, anywhere from like social Democrats and like the, the British labor movement all the way to like Lenin and stuff like that. The reason we're not like that is because we're kind of like, we demand everything now and we are like fully for abolishing wage labor and fully for abolishing everything that needs to be abolished to get rid of capitalism. And like, that's his way of saying that we're not operating under capitalist structures, but it's like, okay, if you take that to its logical conclusion, I feel like exactly what you're saying is like, if you can somehow even create this like association of producers, whether they're free or not under capitalism still, as like the council movement develops, the emergent qualities of that, if any kind of change is going to happen, would take the form of something that looks a l- at least a little bit like a political party. You know what I mean? Because otherwise, it's just a bunch of schmucks hanging out, not doing anything. Kind of like what we do, just talk about it. You know what I mean? It's like, otherwise, nothing's really going to happen. So, like, this distinction between, like, political parties bad, this, like, allergic reaction is, like, I'm fully with him. Like, I, I completely understand what he's talking about, but it's, like it gets into so much of what I get frustrated about with like this more academic-y kind of like look at the problems with capitalism is that it's like you're just bantering over semantics now. And it's like, I understand what you're trying to do, but it's like something like a political party would have to form whether or not it would be like, you know, looking at it, you'd be like, that's a political party. It's Mm -hmm. like, it is almost semantics when you get down to like what Maddox thinks might happen under council communism. I think you've just described, (laughs) you've just described very well um, the activity of revolutionaries in non-revolutionary times. (laughs) What what was the line that he said about the radicals mind just being doomed to depression or something (laughs) like that? It's just like, yeah, you're right. I can find it. I can find it. We we should read this on the show. It is awesome. The political mind of the radical is destined to be miserable. <laughs> I mean, he's not wrong. It is aware of its utopianism and is and it experiences nothing but its failures. <laughs> anyway, I'm a council communist. Yeah. <laughs> it's like okay, <laughs> uh-huh, but it do, uh, but it does it does seem to be the the doctrine of thought that best um, legitimizes. Our activity. Oh sure. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but no, I wanted to. I wanted to um, reflect on perhaps one aspect of um, this theory, which I find quite interesting. Mm-hmm. When it sort of, obviously, he describes the activity of council communists in relation to um, the working class as being a role which is basically just propaganda, right? Sure. It's just like theorizing. What's what the, phrase the is groups? He says. Yeah, yeah. This is so. This groups. is like. This is the groups of council communists in non, like, revolutionary situations. And it's not a party, Dan. It's not a party. (laughs) Nobody's having fun. This isn't a party. (laughs) Well, this is how it distinguishes from the party, right? Mm. In that they don't, although, I I think although they can, they, 
he describes them and they would consider themselves perhaps as um, being in a theoretical position which is in advance of the position held by yes. the working class itself. Yeah. Um, I don't think they predicate their position based on their superior knowledge of yeah. um, I'd agree. of anything kind of thing. Instead, they seem to... He seems to be suggesting that they, they direct all of their activity toward supporting the working class in its present level of yeah. social strife, I suppose. And it's, it's like geographic region as well, obviously. He's not talking about like we need to direct all of our work towards like nations because that's obviously what we need to do. But he's sure. like, yeah, yeah, there's yeah, a regional yeah. aspect yeah, yeah, yeah. to what we, these groups would do. There's a really nice point, point in this where he suggests that being in the position of um, considering yourself to have privileged sort of puritanical <laughs> access to the truth kind of thing <laughs> is a state all? of mind that um is basically the preserve of the sect yeah like if you want to be a pu political puritan like go and join the sect with the five people who agree with <laughs> yeah. everything in its entirety exactly the same way that you do yeah if you want to actually like be practical and get practically engaged with the interests of the working class then mm. in sort of non-revolutionary times Assuming that a revolution, like we can distinguish time yeah. between revolutionary yeah, and non-revolutionary sure. times, <laughs> assuming that they may well be upswings <laughs> in the sort of like natural progression of the the class the struggle. struggle. <laughs> uh, in non-revolutionary times, one ought adapt yourself to the needs of the working class, whilst never like whilst never like validating non sort of like revolutionary uh, ideas that may or may or not be held by members of the working class. Mm. One should also never put yourself so far advanced of them that you're just basically, you have only sort of disdain yeah. well, <laughs> for yeah. their sort of like poorly advanced yeah. uh, theoretical Issues. understanding. Well, that, of. I mean, he also, I think, yeah, he sums it up pretty well when he just says no harm can be done if you're helping workers. So I think that yeah. that was kind of like a, even if you're not out there causing the revolution to happen, relax. It's okay. Just propagandize a bit. So much of this I read is like such defeatism from what had been happening with like communism around the world. That he was just like, guys, I don't know. Let's just get out there and do a little bit of propaganda. Don't feel stressed. Like you need to make it, the huge change happen right now. Just go out, kind of try and convince some people that like, hey, socially necessary labor time calculation. That's a pretty cool way to do things. Wage labor sucks, doesn't it? And just that, that was like, I think one of the last lines of the essay where he just basically said, no. At the end of the day, helping people's good. And it's just like, oh, it was great to hear that, but it was almost like a little bit of like a um, cop out because he's just like, yeah, just help people, dude. I don't know. People will at least appreciate it. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I, yeah, I'm all for it. I love, I, uh, love it. I'll say. <laughs> um, so when we were talking about this earlier, I think that we noticed some connections to be made between previous readings that we've done. Look at that. And you brought up Ellen Meekson's Wood, Dan. But before that, um, I kind of want to bring up a little bit of Stafford Beer and kind of relating what he was talking about to systems theory, because I know that there's a phrase for this, and I went back trying to find it, but I couldn't figure out what it was. But so much of his um, critiques and so much of this essay was just critiquing modern labor movements. So much of it came on the idea of like 
organizational like rot and decay and entropy with um, these organizations, whether they be supposed left-wing political parties or trade unions or things like that, getting caught up with the decline of capitalism and thus with the interest of capitalism, or I suppose I should say getting caught up with the interest and then the decline of capitalism. And their decline of these labor movements has you know paralleled the decline of capitalism and stuff like that. So much of that made me think about... Um, just like Stafford Beer's, I got, I know that there was an idea, there was a phrase that Stafford Beer called this, and it might have just been entropy or something like that. But there was so much that the viable system model was trying to, like he, he built the viable system model in a way to kind of try and combat bureaucratic stagnation mm. and uh, within kind of like labor organizations and things like that. And I think it was interesting. I mean, this idea has obviously been brought up before, but like this idea of council communism without any kind of, um, or any kind of like left wing ultra left thing all the way to like anarchism um, without some kind of guiding principles of organization communication and like just plans is pretty much doomed to fail right because like a huge part of society being run by free and uh, uh, equal producers is the communication between producers because Maddox really another one of his zinger one-liners was like talking about you know centralized uh, planned economies and how much he hates that but it's like okay it's easy to say that you hate like someone in a room planning everything for you but then it's like the idea of well how are you going to get these free and equal producers to talk to each other and to communicate in ways that uh would perhaps uh make it so that everybody carries out democratically planned ideas and like rules for a global society, whether that's like, okay, guys, let's eat, cool it with the fossil fuels or, you know, uh, how are we going to get coffee in somewhere North of like the equator? You know what I mean? Um, this idea of council communism without something like Stafford Beer's ideas uh, would be tricky to comprehend. And as we were saying before this, Dan, you said, um, that also that relates obviously to like the calculation of socially necessary labor time as it relates to getting rid of the wage uh, form and everything like that, but also just to communication and obviously organization. So a lot of these ideas, I think, fit neatly with something like the viable system model. And I uh, found that nice. <laughs> That's my spiel on Stafford. Good, I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm glad. <laughs> Jack has not yet exhausted his, um, his CSM brain. <laughs> oh, oh, God, no. Jesus, help. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one thing I would say, I guess, in regards to this essay is that so much of it is an assessment of the history of the workers' movement mm. and also a sort of prognosis for the place that the workers' movement is in and how it might develop towards um, a revolutionary moment or how revolutionaries might mm. orientate themselves toward sure. engagement with the working class. What it doesn't really include very much of is like, I guess, revolutionary action in a revolution and then also like post-revolutionary organization of society. Yeah. Um, so much of more of that you've probably engaged with. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, you bring up a really good point, which is that like organization is a key aspect of getting us to the revolution, but it's also obviously a huge part of post-revolution. Right? Yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. But also basically, but like in this essay anyway, like, He's almost abdicating organization yeah. as like, or at least like he's highlighting the pitfalls of previous forms of organization. And also, as, as you're, you're very right to highlight, um, he, he highlights <laughs> <laughs> uh, the very many pitfalls of organizational 
stagnation, I suppose, or mm. how organizations adapt themselves to the mode of production and the circumstances that they are operating under. Mm. Yeah, I mean, basically, the whole gist of the, the essay, or at least the early stages of the essay, is to say that, like, we shouldn't be looking to um, revivify the workers' movement as it was, the old workers' movement, mm. but should be looking for an entirely new one. Sure. Um, and he's basically suggesting that the the failings of the the workers' movement of old were because of its organizational forms and also because of the way it was tethered to the history of capitalism. Mm. One of the most interesting aspects of this, which I'd never really come across before, was he's basically plotting the sort of upswings and downswings of the workers' movement onto the upswings and downswings of capitalism itself mm. or um, the formation, the, the formations that the workers' movement take correspond to the state of and the formations of the capitalist mode of production in some mm. ways. I think it's in this essay. He seems he's basically suggesting that like the the workers' movement can petition for a better distribution of the products of capitalism in times when mm. capitalism is booming. Sure. And then obviously, like in like downswings, it can't. Mm. It's equally tethered to the to sort of the downswings of capitalism in terms of what it can achieve in those periods, kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting though, right? Because like he brought up the distribution over production um, idea, which we've kind of discussed on previous episodes. Um, but he brought it up in an interesting way, basically saying that like the labor movements, the development of its theory has become so capitalist in the sense of even someone he says like Rosa Luxemburg has uh, perhaps. Uh, flirted with the idea of emphasizing the uh, poor distribution of capitalism's commodities and goods around the world and not the uh, its inherent problems with production, which, yeah, I completely agree on. Again, like, so much of this that he, he wrote in here, I mean, obviously, I'm, like, very excited by and very, like, I don't know. I mean, this when did when was this written? 1939. It's just written like almost 85 years ago. And it like let's look at the development. He was he was talking about things that happened like in the, his last 20 years. And let's look at the development of these. Uh, he hates the American labor movement. Let's look at the development of the American labor movement, quote unquote, since his time in 85 years, basically of time. And it's like, yeah, he's it's not wrong. You know what I mean? They've just gotten more conservative and more. It's like, wow, we thought the AFL couldn't get any more conservative. Like Jesus, like, you know, I don't know. He's he's certainly not wrong about like the modern labor organizations. We about we we need something new, and I mean, I think that that's something that everybody can agree on. But I guess he's couching it in different terms, as like a Leninist might when they say that like you know we need something new. We need a workers' party, dude. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I would like to get into the weeds a little bit more of how something like that would work because, again, I, one of the things that really got me excited about this was that like the, the council communists do at least attempt to put forward something to like solve these problems. You know what I mean? They at least attempt to not just say, this all sucks, everything sucks, what are you going to do? They at least kind of attempt to have, well, what about if we did it this way? And you know whether or not uh, their way is as outside of the capitalist system as they think it is or how possible that would be is kind of up for debate but yeah would you like to hit us with your Alan Meekson's Wood sure. correlations Dan <laughs> yeah as the listener probably well knows <laughs> I am always quite keen on bringing up it's true this issue that we hit upon in one of our very early episodes and haven't really ever um, found a good resolution to yet mm. 
which is the pro which was the problem that um as Ellen Minkins would describe the transition from capital from feudalism to capitalism she describes it as something emergent from the crass struggle of feudalism mm -hmm. and again that's how we came across this idea again and uh, heard her readings of E.P. Thompson the motive force of history being the the ongoing class struggle mm -hmm. um, but one of the things that Meeksons would proposes as being a key feature of the transition from feudalism to capitalism was that the contending classes of feudalism were struggling to maintain their sort of relative class position within that mode of production mm. or at least they were seeking to advance uh, their own interests within that mode of production Hang on, hang on. Before you go any further, Dan, are you saying that an attempt to maintain the status quo uh, resulted in a change of mode? I don't know. How would, how would Paul Maddock feel about that? Or is that just semantics? I don't know. Anyway, continue. <laughs> I, was, I was left with the impression that um, the almost the transition from uh, the feudal class relations to capitalist class relations were almost something emergent from the class relations of feudalism sure um rather than a sort of like steady transformation of feudal class relations into capitalist ones mm. there was this quite stark break where capitalist class relations were almost an accidental byproduct of the toing and throwing of <laughs> feudalism kind of thing given certain historical contingent historical circumstances right like mm. wasn't just um the the sort of mental decision of the 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 various representatives of the feudal classes to act differently but um it was operating under given and changing historical circumstances that um their reaction to those resulted in these new class relations and ultimately a new mode of production sure um now, similarly in this, Mathic is basically suggesting, he, well, he suggests several times that it's almost impossible for, well, he, he identifies this critique that's been made of the, the old workers' movement that was there was some kind of mismatch between um, their stated aims, the ends in which they intended to achieve, and the means to which they put to achieving mm. those ends. Mm. And he's basically sort of suggesting that... Um, it's almost impossible to identify the appropriate means to the anti-capitalist end that we seek to achieve. Mm. Um, so he's sort of suggesting that the the workers' movement as old was like crippled and hobbled by the, the sort of conceptual inability to achieve this mm. um, transition. To think that transition, I think, is what he's implying. He directly suggests that it's impossible for the classes of capitalism to make informed decisions that would direct action that was intended to achieve a total overturning of the class relations of capitalism whilst they were still locked into those class relations. Sure. Um, he's implying that this, this sort of like their vision is fundamentally curtailed basically mm. by the experience of living under capitalism um 
and again, when he's talking about the the tactics, I suppose, of the Council Communists, he's saying that sort of contra the position of the Leninist Party, it's almost it's impossible to build up sufficiently strong anti-capitalist forces to overflow overthrow uh, capitalist relations when you're living under those capitalist relations. This mm. is basically seems to be what he's implying. So there's mm. this sort of really great impasse between... Um, Unless you're like big brain somehow living outside of it, like the council kind of um, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, this is what this is what I was raising before. Like, I'd quite like to know what their intention was. Those people who wrote the principles of uh, communist production names, and distribution. <laughs> Those they were some kind of collective. Yeah. The board. That collective has a name. <laughs> <laughs> the communist board. Um, I mean, it, it, might, it might be that I'm misunderstanding what uh, Matic is implying. Mm. And it might be that he's he's really overhyping. But so, so obviously um, we've already touched on how this impasse is to be broken. Mm. It's with the create the spontaneous creative activity of the working class. Mm. But it seems in a lot of ways that it's sort of just shifting the miraculous moment when we manage to overcome capitalist social relations, right? Uh. Like the Leninists or the old workers' movement in any one of its forms, whether it was the Bolshevik takeover of the capitalist state or the social democrats mm. in any of its various under any of its various ideological leaders and their positions that they advanced, um, whether it was their intention to sort of capture the state and transform social relations in a sort of like directed mm. gradual or reformist way they're just moving the sort of the sort of magical moment when we transition sort of out of sight kind yeah. of thing it's all they both seem to be predicated on this sort of uh slightly mystical moment kind of thing <laughs> at, at, at least the, those council communists who wrote the productions of mm. the book <laughs> <laughs> Um, and in said book, um, <laughs> a plausible model for a possible transition is advanced, I suppose. Mm. Um, and a map for beyond the transition as well, if, as much as that makes sense. Yeah. Perhaps I should say beyond a revolution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I guess my grappling with this issue is no further advanced other than it's found in the place where it's reflected. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, definitely, we should definitely give them credit for developing a theory on which this all rests, right? Which is socially necessary labor time calculation, which is like, they're not just basically saying the working class will just figure it out and then we'll get communism. Um, it does make me think of, you know, at least a little bit of like, even someone like, um, who's the guy who wrote Revolutionary Strategy? McNair. Um, it's just something along the lines of like, everybody agrees that we need to spread our ideas as much as possible to the point that they just become like much more commonplace than they are now. And this kind of takes it to its extreme, right? It's like ultra left extreme of like, we just need to have these little groups. They're not parties, but they just basically go around spreading a little bit of propaganda, telling people that more stuff's possible. And then um, hopefully everybody, you know, come the transition will be able to just like calculate labor time and we'll have a free association of uh, free producers, blah, 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 blah. Um, 
it, 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 I think it is worth saying that they do have a fairly well fleshed out plan for that because with the effing social Democrats, you just got to like, just vote for us and we'll figure it out. And then somehow we'll just get a better society. Don't worry about it through politics, baby. At least here, they're basically saying, if you can institute this one thing, which is a pretty difficult thing to institute, which is like replacing the wage uh, form with calculation of socially necessary labor time and whatnot, they treat it as an economic question, which... If you could do that, potentially, yeah, it would sort itself out and you could reach, heavier quotes, higher communism, which might look a lot like anarchism. Um, I mean, yeah, I suppose we should, I, that's just the one thing I want to say, which is like, we should definitely give them credit for developing this theory, which sounds pretty good to me. And it seems like that's what Marx was talking about, <laughs> if you ask me. Sure, and they're, they're clearly um, attempting to navigate a problem that was apparent in the, the Paul Matic, um <laughs> demonstrates as being apparent in the old workers movement which was the the transitionary phase of socialism seems very much like it's practically very similar mm. to capitalism yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's almost like we enter the transitional phase then we work out how we're going to actually do transition yeah at least in in this description um of like lower stage socialism communism mm. like i can at least tell why it differs on a sort of economic <laughs> production yeah. basis from capitalism <laughs> yeah and then i guess in that sense like um i mean i don't want to wade too heavily into the waters of because like paul matic in this is very clearly um somebody who advances a state capitalist critique of the soviet union mm. Uh, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> I got nothing from this if not the Soviet Union was, was state capitalist. capitalist. <laughs> I got it. All right, I got it, buddy. Uh -huh, uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, uh, don't want to wade too heavily into those muddy waters. <laughs> Dan, pick a side. There are two sides. You have to pick one now. <laughs> um, but that said, uh, Matic, very sort of quite convincingly sort of demonstrates how um, people were far more capitalist than they intended to be kind of thing, sure. no matter where they were on that political mm. spectrum. Kind of thing. Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it does at least give you a bit of a definition for what capitalism is, which, hey, that's good. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, uh, yeah, council communism, pretty cool if you ask me. Um <laughs> It's funny. It's funny just how prescient a lot of these people kind of wind up being. I didn't know too much about Paul Menach, and I was assuming that he was writing much later than what he was when we got to the end and then had the date there. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, all right. This was like pretty much before World War II. Mm -hmm. Perhaps not, but still right on the brink, if nothing else, and extremely prescient. And I don't know if that's just because it's extremely easy to be pessimistic and a lot harder to be like, I don't know, maybe this could be good. Um, but got to give him credit. I, I dug this, dude. I really dug this. And I mean, maybe again, that's just because it's easy to point out things that are wrong with everybody else and easy to be like, just form councils, dude. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's, all it's, power to the Soviets. It's, <laughs> like, it's an essay heavy on critique and very heavy on sort of like speculative yeah. thinking. Yeah. Um, but it's refreshing at the same time. 100%. And particularly for you and I who like, we've just come off the back of finishing the the Miliband book. Yes. Um and it's interesting, like Miliband, basically Miliband's depiction in that last chapter was that there was this peculiar aberration in the form of Leninism, mm. and it was sort of ill thought out and ill-timed. Mm. 
and really most social democratic, socialist and communist parties basically from the entire first half of the 20th century were all um, primarily reformist parties and Miliband was advancing a kind of revolutionary reformism. Sure. Um, it's funny in this where Matic gives us a very similar uh, rundown of the situation as Miliband does. Yeah. yeah but yeah. it's totally like... Miliband's like, yeah, cool, okay, but like, <laughs> mostly reformism. And Matic's like, yeah, everybody's a fucking reformist. <laughs> yeah. This is the problem. <laughs> because reformism basically just means social reformism. It doesn't even mean uh, Miliband's <laughs> sort of revolutionary form of reformism. It's all the status And, and like, you can quite easily adapt this to be quite a clear critique of uh, Miliband's um, mm. revolutionary reformism. Because mm. that revolutionary reformism very easily and Miliband suggests it and you can see it even from what Miliband could observe like that revolutionary reformism quite easily slips into um, social reformism yeah and maybe it never even naturally existed in any other form other than social reformism exactly. maybe maybe the the old workers movement never had any tactical or um, strategic position that basically wasn't some form of um social reformism mm. because their intention is to improve the lot of the workers mm. under capitalism mm. but they're there, they therefore even if they're trying to in increase the distribution oh oh <laughs> Don't you um, of values improve them in the in the balance in favor of workers mm. they're still tying themselves to that mode of production which exactly. is interested in the production of abstract value mm. uh, and takes no interest in actually resolving the contradiction between um, use value and exchange value. Exactly. And I mean, I think one thing to take away from this is that like in a perfect world, this is, we should all be council communists. You know what I mean? Because like, I, th I think I said something similar to this in one of the more recent episodes, but, like, we we live in such a fundamentally evil society that's just predicated on just destruction and short-sightedness and no other way to say it, just pure evil, that, like, we should all be demanding a new mode right now. And, like, for anybody to kind of come along and be like, oh, Palmetto, poo-poo, the ultra-left, it's like, you know... You can disagree on the means to get to um, a more just society, a classless society, but like he's right when he says we all need to be demanding right now the end of wage labor, the end of uh, the value form, the end of all of this, because like there's there is no other way. And he was writing at a time where the environmental question wasn't as pressing. He literally didn't bring it up once. And so like now when it is like, oh, Dan, you and I will probably be alive to see some pretty horrific consequences of climate change in the sense that we aren't already seeing them currently. Um, we all, we all need to be council communists in the sense that we all need to be demanding a classless society right now because it's, yeah, things are going to get bad if we don't. So, you know, be Leninists all you want, but at heart, we should all be council <laughs> communists. Yeah. Yes. Sure. Yes. Except this is also in some respects, like a form of ultimate resignation to True. just having things play out and accepting that you as a radical revolutionary don't have a lot of control over mm. um how things advance and develop i suppose and I, I, but... I guess like there are like a, a a satisfactory resolution to the problem of climate breakdown mm. is 
something which is ultimately in the favor of the workers. Yeah, exactly. But also, um, can can we find a significant a, a, a um, satisfactory satisfactory resolution to that problem in the next whatever ten years, yeah. which is predicated purely on whatever it was it critique and propaganda. <laughs> yeah, it, I, don't, I think in, that's a little unfair yeah, to be resigned perhaps. to critique and propaganda. But you're absolutely right. Like something that will solve the environmental question immediately would be much closer to a centrally planned economy in the short term. Maybe 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 I'm just a Bernsteinist. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> <laughs> And is a millibandist Bernsteinist. Yeah. Where did where did you where did where if you if you have to, which don't feel like you have to, where did you come down and kind of as the uh, dichotomy that you created of milliband, which I don't know if anybody's ever done this milliband versus matic. <laughs> what are, what are your thoughts on uh, on where you on where a good ideology would lie? I guess I appreciate some of the theoretical positions advanced by this. Mm. But I guess I'd have to do a lot more thinking to work out how I can square it with sure. a um, approach as regards strategy and tactics. Sure. I guess I still want to be able to find an answer in some of those writings which seek to do something which Matic would critique as uh, rekindling the workers' movement of old. Mm. Um I mean, again, like, I like, I, I like, I like, I mean, this is the problem, I guess. I like the idea of having a, um, having your ultimate, if it were possible to construct a position and a political movement which could both maintain a revolutionary political horizon, mm. but be, uh, <laughs> um, I guess, reformist in a Milibandist way. Mm. I would be interested. Now, Mil mm. Matic is um, suggesting that that's impossible mm. from numerous different fronts. From both, both, Basically, he's kind of like, almost kind of like a knowledge problem kind of thing. Like, mm. it's just impossible to think it. Yeah, and yeah. also from the, <laughs> from a sort of like very pragmatic, uh, uh, strategic and tactical standpoint that revolution reformism in a millibandist sense strays into social reformism mm. which basically just turns into defense of the status quo yeah uh so we're in a bind i suppose <laughs> yeah, we're in a present. bind we can all agree on there's a bind but yeah that might be my definitive <laughs> statement for this week for now. i think i think i'll very slightly and again this is so silly because it's semantics i'll very slightly rephrase what you're saying and perhaps just to poise the question as how can we use current capitalist structures and the capitalist state specifically to get to what maddock is talking about to get to what he wants because i think what he's talking about and what he wants is like higher communism and highest communism right yeah. because he's talking about like how can we make it so that the workers themselves have this uh information and knowledge to then put into place this free association of producers um i think that perhaps that's maybe missing a step um because we're at still so long after he wrote this we're still at such a um i don't want to say theoretical gap because there's a lot of theory out there but um a a knowledge gap in the working class of what is and isn't possible and how can we open that up to then open up to ideas like this? And I think that that's kind of the question that more right-wing kind of Marxists, I don't want to say that, Marxists to the right of this would um, would grapple with and come to heads with them at. Because again, I love this, and I love all the ideas that he's putting forward, but yeah, maybe missing a step. I don't yeah. Know. yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. yeah, it was it was quite surprising to me. I thought I'd sort of like moved beyond my left communist days, <laughs> but I found this a lot more of this a lot more provoking and mm. potentially inspiring than I had had expected to. We're at a very frustrating time, I think, and this is very cathartic. I'll say that. I think that's maybe why I loved it so much because it's just like fuck it. Council <laughs> uh, uh. communism. I like it. I'll say it. I like it. Um, as much as I joke about like naming myself something new every week, um, there's no point, I think, really, in labeling yourself as a as um, beyond kind of like a Marxist socialist or something like that because it's just like, really, we're gonna argue about this when nine out of ten people on the street, you'd talk to them about this, they'd be like, "What are you talking about?" It's like it's a little like, it really, do we need to be like splitting ourselves up even more than beyond just getting people to understand that why a classless society would be ideal for everyone. So good stuff. I'll say it. Love it. Mm -hmm. Don't think I've ever really ever read anything where I've gone this. Uh, well, actually, there was that one time. So <laughs> never mind. <laughs> I think there will be more left communism in our future. Yes. There will be more left communism. <laughs> At least in the future of this podcast. I don't know about yeah. Like, yeah. the future yeah. of any political movements that you know we what's may, funny? may not associate with. Is that with this, we've slightly moved to the right reading this. Not with the Miliband, obviously, but like we've come back from book gym. Oh, <laughs> we're, I see. We're reading council comments. I, I feel like, I feel like, I feel like um, this and anarchism are yeah. sort of parallels yeah. rather than the, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Alternate positions on the spectrum. Kind of what thing. is an anarchist? And when someone can explain to me what an anarchist is, <laughs> love them. Love everybody. Love it all. It's all going to be great. Um, Especially you, the dear listener. Yes. We love you the most. Especially you. We do love you indeed. Um, spread these ideas because they're good ideas. Um, yeah, I don't know. What else is there? What else? Anything, anything going on in the media sphere that we met? Oh, Prince Philip's dead. <laughs> That's right. Duh. <laughs> um, was he, I've been was very he successfully avoiding this oh, sure. for the most part? Was he on our, um, I think he was briefly. Briefly. Yeah. I mean, no, I was not. I, <laughs> I think he was on our list by virtue of the fact that it was quite clear he was on death's door anyway. Yes. Let's be clear. This is not a kill list. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. This is a death watch list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it was only an honorable mention, really. We were t <laughs> we were talking about him in passing, and therefore we suggested, he I suppose he probably ought to be yeah, on our on the list, list of people that we're checking in with occasionally. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it wow. turned out, like, Prince Philip had quite a lot of people to check in with him. Yeah. Like, a lot of people <laughs> seem to care quite a lot. Yeah. <laughs> or at least, like... A lot of people. Um, the the both the government and the media apparatus of this country is really trying very hard to make people care. Yes. Whether it's succeeding, I severely doubt. I mean, if I like... am quite interested in this actually, though. Um, as a, I don't know what I don't know what the equivalent for this situation is to the saying. I think we just protest too much, but like, okay, they are. Clearly, the government and the media are clear. Of particular branches of the media, our um, our state-run broadcast media, <laughs> our regime broadcaster that we have in this country, um, are very clearly trying to make it seem like people care. Yes, and I think that I don't. I don't know what the what the the strategic intention is. Right, whether it's designed to simply. Provoke those people who, in the general public, who are appear who for whom sort of culture wars stories and narratives appeal, right? Mm. It, is it even if it's just like twenty five percent of the people who are like 
frothing at the <laughs> mouth like there's a flag not half mast there's a flag not sufficiently sure. at half mast sure. kind of um <laughs> jeremy corbyn didn't sufficiently bow deep <laughs> enough blah, 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 kind of thing um is it just designed to provoke them in a sufficient way as to sort of like i don't know provoke them mm. Um, without doing any damage to the to the seventy five percent of people who are just like this is all a bit weird and I don't get it, <laughs> or is it actually going to turn the majority of people who I think they are a majority who like don't really care? Yeah, is it actually sure. turning them against the monarchy? Yeah, um, I tend to think that it's something different because that's kind of what I expected the media apparatus to do, as you've the state run the the British broadcasting Clinton, if you will, Dan. Um, <laughs> I, I expected something like that to happen to kind of fuel a culture war, but it seems to me very much a, like it's just doing what it thinks it's supposed to do. They're like, oh, we have a royal family in this country, so we should be sad that this guy's dead. And it just seems to ver- kind of fallen very flat because it's like if the queen died, I'd be like, oh, my God, the queen's dead. I still don't understand why this guy wasn't a king, but he, who cares about – no offense, but like this guy. It was like some guy. Uh-huh. I don't care. Uh-huh. He's not he, – I don't know. The queen died on the other end. Whoa, that'd be a different story. But there's some dude. I think, I mean, maybe it does speak to just the ambiguous position in which the British constitution Mm. exists Mm. and how everybody's not really quite sure (laughs) how we're supposed to respond to these sort of like clearly constitutional moments, I suppose. Mm. Um, Or it, it... Moments which are supposed to have some bearing on our sort of like... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Either constitutional sense of ourselves or our sort of national sense of ourselves, that kind of thing. So it may may well be that just like the media in particular are playing the game that they think they're meant to be playing kind of thing. The most most ludicrous um, (laughs) example of um, tribute, form of tribute played (laughs) to Prince Philip that I heard about, which I haven't actually investigated, was that apparently, I think it was the website for... National Rail or British Rail. <laughs> I saw this. It was put entirely into black and white. That's to awesome. To the point where it was almost illegible for people to actually <laughs> read. Good for them. And people were complaining and then the sort of tech support were being like, yeah, I can't fucking read it. <laughs> They're like, I also don't know what's happening. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Incredibly ludicrous. I Incredibly timed ludicrous. how long it took the church across the street from me to put its flag at half-mast an hour and 10 minutes after uh-huh. I got the news. Uh-huh. So a little disappointed i love the idea of like the vicar calling someone like a phone tree like who's closest to go put the flag down <laughs> i like the idea that the organizing committee for that church or the community group that organizes that church doesn't have a whatsapp group what they have is a text message chain yeah, exactly. and it took, it took exactly that length of time for the text message chain to sort of like ring all the way through to Pressing the person who's actually three times. <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. Next, i mean they will realize from this moment that they need, really need to develop some kind of code because yeah. like <laughs> some sort of fire try, signals like the length of time it takes to type with an old-fashioned an old-fashioned mobile phone <laughs> his royal highness yeah, the duke exactly. of edinburgh <laughs> hrm too long, too long we need to abbreviate these things we need to abbreviate these things i like that the, the um i like that the flagpole on the mm the the Westgate Towers isn't really sufficiently long to actually yeah, fly a flag at half mast. Like it's a huge flag. It's a huge too. flag. It's quite a short flagpole. And so putting it at half mast is actually like lowering the flag by about <laughs> half of the width of the flag itself kind of thing. Which struck me as a kind of, yeah, it feels like quite an impotent gesture, I suppose. Yeah. Like if you really want to be able to make the gesture. Put the flag upside down. 
Yeah, I mean, maybe uh, or like fly a smaller flag, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. like it's, then that would be like, why kind of a like, smaller flag? Alex? Yeah, it's, it's impotence <laughs> revealed by a further impotence. Like yeah, exactly. the size of the flag is just <laughs> grotesque. Um, they uh, need to get a bigger flagpole, I think. They, yeah, yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah, that'd be really yeah, cool. Yeah. There are some cities in Mexico that I forget which cities. I think Ensenada is one where they just have like one huge flag, like a flag maybe the size of this building. For some reason, it just flows like by the port. Uh, flows what's the word flies, flies. um and it, it's awesome i'll be honest it's yeah. really cool yeah yeah of a big flag. one big flag <laughs> one big flag nobody has to have one at their allotment nobody has to have one in the yeah. hanging outside yeah their house. <laughs> one big I, flag I, I even saw some union jacks flying at half mast at the allotment i know i don't get me started on that oh my god i saw that too <laughs> well i mean i guess if, i don't yeah i guess if you have a flag you're probably gonna fly it at half mast for some reason yeah you're one of those people. yeah i was joking that um we should, I should, we should, someone should go around and quibble with people about whether their flag was in the correct position on the flagpole to be showing sufficient amount of contrition and respect. I'm very sad. Yeah. Um, I think we know somebody at the lot who might do that. So we... Yes, we do. Indeed. <laughs> um, so sad. Uh, I like that Prince Andrew's back in the news too. That's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, I thought that they'd wield him out to the like, yeah. comment. I didn't. I don't know whether I didn't watch any of the interviews. So I don't know whether anybody actually asked him any awkward questions. Or I mean, I think whether just... it was decided that this is the time to put him back on television because nobody, nobody. Maybe he just went on the BBC, and obviously the BBC are so like yeah, um, like we won't talk about you molesting children. But yeah. I mean, I like I like that they bought him out because it was like they wheeled him out. And then they humiliated him, and then he's gone again. <laughs> it's like, that's what we should keep doing to him. What do you think about this, you idiot? <laughs> you runt? <laughs> um, fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, good for them. Mm-hmm. How, so, so how old's the queen now? I don't know. 90. Oh, actually, I do know. She's one year younger than my grandmother, so she must be 95 or 94 turning 95, something like that. Um, ooh. I'm not. I'm not going to say that we should put her on the list because that seems mean no, for some reason. We don't care. Don't care sufficiently. Exactly. Much. Not, exactly. Not interested. See, I mean, I, I will say in, I haven't checked in with anybody else. I mean, I'm sure I would have heard if Noam Chomsky kid died. Oh, he's not dead. Um, we definitely would have heard if Kissinger died. Yeah, you think so? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There'd be parties in the streets, baby. I mean, they're the only two, right? That's it. Yeah. Yeah. We can have someone. We can nominate someone to take his place, but I don't know any old people that I want to put on the list. Um, I will say the queen I just kind of think she's funny the rest of them I'm disgusted by but it's like I don't know it's just funny the concept of like that's what Americans think that the royalty is like and then you are like oh that's what she's like she's just this absurd figure it's just funny it's just like eh I don't know it'll be really awful when I don't know who next is in line but when someone else gets it it's just gonna be like okay now I really hate this but like yeah the queen she's just funny yeah 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 Yeah. Yeah, I mean, she's holding out and refusing to abdicate, presumably because she really doesn't want Prince Charles to take over. Is that, that's her son? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I thought him and I Prince think... Philip were the same person, so <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, like, they were related, Prince Philip and the Queen, but not like... What? <laughs> yeah, they were like second or third cousins. Mm. Was... I mean, they're royalty, of course. They're yeah, royalty. sure. He was Greek, wasn't he? Or he of was Greek, Greek royalty? Wow, he was of Greek royalty. Sure. I think he was more German than anything else. No surprise there. Yeah. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, that's our monarch gossip for the week. Uh-huh. Um, that's about all I got. Yeah. Council communism. I wonder how the queen would feel about council communism. I was thinking, I was wondering how the queen takes her tea. 
today because mm. um, I was making way too much tea, thinking like I've decided that <laughs> I think that oat milk is better than normal milk. I've decided that officially. Uh -huh. And so I like if I was the queen, I would probably use oat milk, even though I'm assuming she's not like vegetarian, vegan, anything like that. Yeah. It just makes a better cup of tea. So maybe that's how I would do it if I was the queen. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have read that she has five drinks a day, which I think is pretty cool. Uh -huh. Good for her. You mean alcoholic beverages? Alcoholic drinks. Yeah, 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 yeah. She has like two glasses of champagne, a glass of wine, a gin, and then like a port or something uh -huh. like that. It's like, holy shit. And that's just for breakfast. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> She's like, let's rule a country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you want to live to be 99. Yeah. Drink. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, also like. Be an incredibly privileged <laughs> yeah. member of the ruling class of the yeah. country. Um, and do barely any work. Dude, what do you think they had to do to Prince Philip to get him to live past those couple days where there were those photos of him coming out of the <laughs> hospital just like skeleton-esque? What did they pump him full of to get him to survive from yeah, then until yeah, the other yeah, day? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, whatever it was that they were giving to Trump when he had COVID. Yeah, exactly. Probably that. Adrenochrome. Um... <laughs> 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 um, all right. Well, now that we've bought up Adrenochrome, maybe it's a good time to end the. Uh, yeah. We stop now. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Well, this has been your council communists on the ground um, uh, with the workers, the workers in the trenches, the trenches on the factory floor. Yeah. Yeah. Um, God bless. Um, God save the queen. Um, my name has been Jack. My name has been Dan. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you very much. The auxiliary statement. The music you heard this episode was Music to Kill Bad People To by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. If you like this song, you can check it out and much, much more on their Bandcamp at kinggizzard.bandcamp.com. Be sure and follow us up on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you like what you heard, be sure and tune in next week for some more comedy discussion. Till next time.